from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Well, according to a recent NOAA report, the global surface temperature for 2022 was the sixth highest since record keeping began in 1880. The average temperature was 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average. This was also the 46th consecutive year since 1977 with global temperatures above the 20th century average. In fact, the 10 warmest years on record have all occurred since 2010 with the last nine years among the 10 warmest. Joining us in the first part of the show to discuss this report, its findings and its trends will be Jake Fortune, a climate scientist with NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. Then in the second part of the show, we'll turn our attention to the state legislature, which is halfway through its 2023 legislative session. Currently, uh, there are over, you. <laughs> my turn, 20 <laughs> environmental pieces of legislation that will shape the future of Utah's health and environment. This includes bills addressing air quality, water conservation, and renewable energy. Misi Gonzalez, communications coordinator with environmental advocacy group HEAL Utah, will join us to discuss some of these bills and their chances of passing. All that and some news on the stresses local wildlife are experiencing from both nature and humans. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. And now that we're done fighting in the studio, <laughs> we're going to That's the best part of the show. <laughs> we're going to welcome our first guest, Jake Fortune. He is a climate scientist with NOAA's National Center for, the, for Environmental Information. Uh, Jake, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, hi, good morning. Well, um, we we definitely want to talk about the climate report uh, that was recently released, yes. um, talking all about kind of 2022. Yep. But we also have some really critical breaking news. Not critical. Which has to do with Groundhog Day. Why and are? And we have to ask, um, Claire and I are interested, you know, where did Groundhog Day come from like what are the origins and is there any legitimacy behind this <laughs> so um it, it, so from my understanding groundhog's day is originally a pennsylvania dutch tradition that they brought over from europe and the idea was you know you would if a groundhog came out of its burrow on february 2nd and if i saw a shadow um uh, a few more weeks of winter than you probably want and if it didn't see a shadow you know uh, an early arrival of spring uh the first uh, uh, Groundhog Day celebration in Poxitani, I believe, was 1887. Um, and as time has gone on, that tradition and the uh, attention that Poxitani Phil has gotten has kind of grown uh, and gotten more attention as time has gone on. And reading sort of the the NOAA analysis of this, it seems that that Poxitani Phil does not have a great record. Yeah. So uh, over the last decade or so, we've tried to look at. Uh, Oxitani Phil's uh, uh, prediction and whether, you know, spring came early or late for the whole contiguous United States. And so uh, he's batting at about 40% average overall <laughs> over the last decade, uh, at about the same if you look back further uh, in the period of record as well. Right. That That's that's worse than a coin flip. <laughs> yeah, so if I was the town, <laughs> if I was the town next door to Punxsutawney, I would have the you know, George Washington coin flip or something, quarter flip, and, and <laughs> see know, how I, quarter does versus the <laughs> dumb groundhog. 
<laughs> well, you know, I, there have been a few other kind of groundhog uh, type events that have sprung up around the country. You know, I, I'm in the South. I'm in North Carolina. Uh, and just just south of us in Georgia, they have General Beauregard Lee, who is <laughs> oh. also a groundhog, who tries to predict the weather for the south. And so whether Poxitani, Phil, you know, represents the whole U.S. or just the region, right. you know, that's mm. to be debated. But these things have popped up elsewhere. There's uh, interest <laughs> in having a rodent <laughs> predict your future. Well, that is, is this... what is interesting, I, I, I'll admit, is, the, is this um, idea of using animals or, or insects, woolly caterpillars, or, or maybe plants as potential indicators of, of what, uh, you know, what the next seasons or what the weather might bring. Um, and so that is, Andrew, that is like a human f- concept that we have. We have the, we always want to find indicators of what's, what's sure. to come. Like predict the future. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know, uh, before we had uh, c- complex computer models that give yeah. us an accurate picture of what's coming for the next, uh, the, potentially the next season. I think you know, as human nature is to kind of look for those signs, to pull out signal, maybe where there isn't signal, to uh, understand what might be happening. You know, uh, I, I grew up and I loved finding the woolly worms, woolly caterpillars, mm. and trying to figure out what the winter was going to be. Maybe that's why I went into this field. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I think people are always looking for those answers where they can find them. You know, it seems a little bit similar to maybe the Farmer's Almanac, which we've talked yeah. about in the past as well. You right. know, is there any, um, is there anything we can pull from this or is it sort of hopeful guessing, you know? Um, you know, there, there might be some signal there, you know, mm. um, it, you know, it makes sense that some animal's behavior might change based on what's going to happen with the next season, right? Preparing for it to be colder. or pre- expecting right. it to be longer before they get their next meal so there there is some you know uh evidence that that could be the case but whether we're interpreting those signals correctly or not um i think is to be determined right migration pattern or not migration but migration timing or something for birds if they you know you, you see them heading south gonna go early oh that's an it could be it's going to be a cold winter, or an early winter or something now i will say this for for the ground to the groundhog's credit <laughs> Uh, obviously, when this started back in the late 1800s and early 90s, it was probably designed to be more of a, a regional effort to predict whether winter was going to end earlier or stay six weeks later in western Pennsylvania or maybe along the East Coast. Then suddenly Phil got, got, uh, had to, to put, uh, put on his shoulders uh, the entire country or mm. something. And that's a little National unfair fame. to the ground. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> that was the... Yeah, that is my understanding. You know, it, it, there was, you know, when it was first started, you know, it, there wasn't the intention that, you know, he was predicting <laughs> the upcoming season in California, for example. <laughs> uh, that's a little unreasonable. But I, <laughs> I do think, you know, we, we kind of use it as a tool, though, here at NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information to uh, get people interested in climate science, understanding what might happen, understanding those things that people use to predict the weather and, and, and bringing it back to reality. Uh, so that we can understand and get people interested in the weather and the climate and what's happening around them. Well, I love it. And I, I think I think it's brilliant. There's a fantastic uh, like graphic or chart that you guys have showing the history of this and the accuracy. And so for any <laughs> listeners that are interested, you you got to go take a look. Well, uh, let me let me add this now that now that I'm into this. I was totally opposed to this conversation. All right. Now, if we had reversed it and the groundhog instead of what? 
if it sees the shadow, it's an additional six weeks of winter, right? If it doesn't, it's winter will end early. If I have that right. right, Jay? Okay. So if whoever came up with that idea simply switched it around on the day that they decided they came up with that idea, Phil would have a 60% success <laughs> rate. <laughs> maybe That's right. And then maybe Noah, maybe Noah would have to change our forecast models to take into account what Bill's saying. Exactly. Put that in the algorithm and maybe, see. Maybe they should consider changing that that rule. All right. Can we get to can we get to like real science, some heavier science? Although <laughs> equally as troublesome at times. Equally right? as troublesome. <laughs> yeah. It can be. Okay. So we said in our intro that 2022 was the sixth highest, um, uh, sixth warmest year on record globally for surface temperatures. Because surface temperatures, if I understand it, let's, let's get a little definition of terms, take into account both air temperature and water temperatures. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So the observation is taken at the, so, so when we say surface temperature, it means the surface of the earth. So whether that is taken on ground, like at an airport, or on the surface of the water from like a ship or a buoy. Okay, so was one warmer than the other, or were they both just generally warm? Uh, they were both generally warm. Um, the, 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 the one thing that was kind of interesting in 2022, we had what we called a triple dip La Nina. Mm. So La Nina is the opposite of El Nino, uh, and that's marked, La Nina is marked by cooling, um, cooler than average ocean temperatures over a large part of the equatorial Pacific. Uh, and this is the third year in a row we've had a La Nina event, which is which is atypical. Uh, you know, they only typically only last one or two years. And so that has actually drawn down or cooled global temperatures a little bit compared to the long-term trend because of that large area of uh, cooler than average temperatures in the equatorial Pacific. Uh, we do expect that to go away in 2023. Uh, we don't know if there will be an El Nino this year or not. But in general, you know, the, the warmth was pretty ubiquitous, pretty except for that part of the equatorial Pacific um, where we had the La Nina event. And these are all <clears throat> oh, these are all surface readings. So I'm curious, you know, um, what like what would this show, you know, if we were looking at um, temperatures like deeper in the ocean, mm. I guess, like is some of our heat sort of like disappearing there or hiding from these measurements there? <laughs> Yeah, so we actually have uh, another component of the report is the ocean heat content, which looks at the top 500 meters of the ocean. And so this is these observations are taken from various platforms. And what is happening uh, as the surface of the planet warms, the ocean is, is absorbing a lot of that heat. Um, and so we did see record high ocean heat content in 2022. So that top layer of the ocean uh, is the, was the warmest we've seen, even though that the global temperature surface record was a little bit cooler. Okay, so sixth warmest, I think, if we ever got this right, the top 10 have all occurred in the last 10 years or so? Uh, that, that That is right. So we do have a long-term warming trend, despite... Okay. Uh, 2022 not being record warm again, that La Nina event kind of uh, brought down the average temperature a little bit. But we we, you know, we do have a long-term warming trend with those uh, warmest years on record all occurring very recently. 
Wow. I mean, I remember now when we started the show again back in 2007, 2008, things were starting to warm then. And we say, oh, my goodness, this was the third or fourth yeah. warmest. And But there were still years back in the 20th century. I don't remember when. 1998 <laughs> comes to mind. It was always, that was like the record year and maybe 1936. There were still years back then that people were looking at and say, see, it was it was hot back in 1936 or some dust bowl years and then 1998 was a big year now jake forget it forget about the 90 forget about the first part of this century the the warmest uh, years are this past decade that is right so you know if we look decade over decade you know the 2000s were warmer than the 90s the 2010s were warmer than the 2000s uh, and now the 2020s are on track to be warmer than the 20 teens. Mm. And that, you know, that is indicative of, you know, longer term climate change. And it's, you know, people kind of get hung up in the year to year variability. Like, is it warmest? Is it third warmest? Is right. it sixth warmest? But but there are things that are happening on the surface of the planet, like that La Nina event, like other uh, smaller weather factors that can influence the annual temperature. That doesn't mean it's uh, every year is going to be warmer than the last but when you look, take that longer term average and, you know, you're looking over longer periods, that warming trend is there and it really shows up when you look at the decadal averages. Do we have an animal that can help us predict annual <laughs> temperatures? <laughs> and not that I know of. I know we have some pretty complex computer models that are trying to understand <laughs> this, but uh, in terms of animals, I'm not sure. Well, we should. Why not? I mean, maybe people will resonate more towards that if they see... <laughs> Like the polar bear goes, uh, hibernates or something earlier. So um, we need to need to work on that, Jake. That's all. That's my idea. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll see. I'll, I'll go talk or to my plant or an say. insect. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's <laughs> that's where we stand. Is it safe to say? I know this is this is getting back into prediction. Is it safe to say that every year from this point forward, plus or minus, is is going to be in the top ten? Um, I, you know, I, I can't say that with any certainty because, you know, right. there, there are things that could happen. You know, if there's a volcanic eruption, ah. you know, that could have a cooling effect on okay. temperatures that happened in the late 1970s. Uh, so there are events that would preclude that from happening. However, the trend is clear. The trend has been in place for decades now. And the, I, I believe that is a reasonable expectation to have. Okay, so temperatures are warming. We see that. Uh, like, what is it, 1.5 or so degrees Fahrenheit. Out here in the western U.S., temperatures are warmer still. Uh, we've seen average temperatures here in the Salt Lake area, Utah, are 2, 3, almost 4 degrees above uh, average. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, no surprise, certain parts of the country, certain parts of the globe experience warmer temperatures than others. But do we have any sense of how precipitation and and storm or not for storms but say say the jet stream is changing its patterns or its shape or its speed uh in uh with respect to these warming temperatures yeah there, there's a couple of, of things here to consider so uh -huh. uh, as the atmosphere warms it can hold more moisture um, it's just a, a, it's a, a, a law of physics that you know a warmer a warmer air can hold more moisture within it and uh, what's happening and what we're seeing with the warmer atmosphere is that when it rains, it rains more at once. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing a lot more flood events, inland flood events, coastal flood events. 
Well, what happens then is when it does precipitate and it precipitates more, the atmosphere is emptying out. And so areas that are not seeing the precipitation are seeing less precipitation. So wetter areas are getting wetter and drier areas are getting drier. So it seems counterintuitive that both would be happening at the same time. But it is it is because of that have how the precipitation is leaving the atmosphere in these larger single events and there's more time between those single events and so um that so we're kind of seeing that in terms of precipitation for individual locations in terms of the jet stream one of the things that is happening you know the jet stream is kind of driven by the warm cold gradient the tropics are warm the polar regions are cold in general right and so that temperature gradient is what drives the jet stream and mm-hmm. what causes it to you know be in place well, one of the things we're observing is that the uh, Arctic region is warming way faster than the rest of the globe. Mm. So that temperature gradient is actually becoming less, and that is driving the jet stream to weaken and become a little more wobbly, for mm. lack of a better word. And that's and that is you know why we see a lot more of these polar vortex events. So it's it's, it's almost counter again counterintuitive that a warming world would cause us to have more polar vortex events, right. but it's actually that gradient lessening between the warm tropics, cold Arctic that's causing mm-hmm. the jet stream to be more wobbly and allow this cold air to, to filter down to us in the mid latitudes. And when you say wobbly, do you mean that it's kind of moving north and south, or that it's? Um, uh, like sort of an oscillating pattern or a, you know, dips, a, the bigger dips, bigger and dips. And, yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah. It's the bigger troughs. dips. Uh, so if you think about you and a friend uh, uh, holding a, um, a jump rope and you're holding one end and your friend's holding the other jump rope and, you know, you're standing and the, the line is taut. So that would be the normal jet stream, right? Traveling east to west, excuse me, west to east. And then all of a sudden you start raising your arm and you see the waves in the, in the jump rope. So that is what is happening more in the jet stream now is we're seeing more of these wiggles, these oscillations that are allowing surges of warm temperatures in some locations and then those cold polar outbreaks in others. Okay. Thanks for for clarifying that. I'll let you go. All right. So as an example, uh, when we see uh, unusually cold weather maybe dip down into the Gulf states or northern Florida or central Florida, Jake, that could, that's like you say, it's counterintuitive to think that that's a result of a warming world, in effect. It, it, it can be, yes, right? Yeah. So, you know, individual weather events are driving, driven by many factors, but this is one of them. Climate change is definitely influencing weather we see today, but there, there is evidence to show that the warming Arctic region is causing these more wiggly, more oscillating jet stream, allowing colder outbreaks further south. So you've mentioned sort of these individual vents and the warmer air that's holding more moisture. Um, that also lends itself to sort of extreme events that be, can become, you know, sort of disastrous for the people that live in an area. Um, can you talk to us about any like change in the number of these um, major sort of catastrophic events that we're seeing? Sure. So one of the things we uh, track here at um, NCEI is billion-dollar weather disaster events. So these are weather and climate events that impact the U.S. that have damages over $1 billion, um, so a pretty high threshold. So we've seen a almost systematic increase in the number of these events. 
and, and there are two reasons for that. We are seeing more extreme weather, uh, more extreme weather events, but we're also build, building in areas that are more vulnerable. Uh, so you think about coastlines, right? We have more intense hurricanes. Yes, check. But we're building more places. We're building more stuff in the track of that hurricane. So, the, so there are two kind of pieces that go into what is causing more of these disasters. But extreme weather and increasing extreme weather, extreme weather is definitely uh, part of that uh, picture. I was thinking about what happened in Buffalo in the western part of the New York. Uh, this this winter, the records amount of snowfall they experienced over well, maybe a seven or ten day period, um, mm-hmm. and that again is a result of a warmer lake, a warm Lake Erie that wasn't that freezing right. up, yeah. and then you get those um, belts of snow. So again, it's it, it, it counterintuitive. They got more snow, record of snow, because of actually warmer conditions. That, that is right. Uh, yeah, and, and you know the, the lake before the cold air moved in was like near record warm levels. Yeah, and that was due to the preceding preceding you know season being warmer than average. So it's uh, but but the weather event itself, the weather event was cold. But the long term climate of the of the area over the months leading up to that event were very warm. And so these two things are interacting together to create that specific event. All right. So. Uh... How are we doing? We're only two months into 2023. <laughs> the last couple minutes. Uh, any? How are we doing these these first two months? Um, so, uh, so we did just release our January report. They, hmm. uh, so our monthly reports tend to come out about two weeks after the month ends, uh, and uh, looks like January is warmer than average. It was not a record warm uh, January. Again. That La Nina event is holding on in the in the equatorial Pacific, which is cooling global temperatures. Um, and we did see record low global sea ice uh, in mm. January, so less ice in the Arctic and a- Antarctic than we've seen in previous Januarys. All right. Well, I still think uh, we need to have some type of animal uh, that we that we pull out of its burrow on January first hold up and, and announce that this year is going to be in the top 10 warmest years. That's, I that, think it's going to be a pika. That's like a 95% success rate. You know, <laughs> we just have to figure out some beaver, <laughs> pull it out of its lodge. So there's, all right. <laughs> I'll leave that up to you. All right. I'm just, I'm just trying to beat my entrepreneurial spirit. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Jake, where can people go to actually get this, uh, uh, the latest, the 2022 year climate report? Yep. So if you just go to our homepage, it's NCEI, National Centers for Environmental Information, NOAA.gov. So NCEI.NOAA.gov slash news. And we have all of our reports up there and uh, easy to understand format. And you can uh, look at the information yourself. You can find the global temperature stats for 2022, and you can also find that clever Groundhog Day graphic uh, <laughs> indicating the spilled success over the last decade. We all know that that's that's what we're all going to go look for. So <laughs> we appreciate you joining so, us. And, someone and just texted that. me grizzly bear. I love if we pull a grizzly <laughs> yeah. bear out. <laughs> all right, Jake Fortune, climate scientist with NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. Thanks so much for joining us this morning on this green earth. Yeah, thank you very much. It was fun. Yes. And joining us for uh, the second part of the show 
is Mesa Gonzalez. He's a communications uh, rep for Heal Utah. They're an in- nonprofit environmental advocacy group uh, in the state of Utah. And he's here to talk about the Utah legislative session. Hey, we're halfway through it. It finishes, I believe, March 3rd. And may say you're here to kind of share with us how things are going with respect to bills covering environmental issues. Um, so let's, let's there. You said, we said in the intro there's some 20 environmental pieces of legislation in one form or another. Um, how are they doing in general? Well, first off, thank you so much for having us on. It's always great to uh, be on. And, yeah, we are now on week five out of seven of this year's legislative session. And we're seeing a lot of things moving really quickly now. So that's kind of where our legislators start putting things into committees and a lot of movement starts happening. And our team is watching over 20 bills. There are quite a bit more bills that are related to the environment, but we're kind of focusing on 20 of them right now. Uh, we have a lot of coalitions and other partners that look into different bills, so we're kind of all teaming up together and making sure that all these bills are covered. Uh, but our team primarily looks into legislation related to clean air, uh, just an equitable transition to clean energy, and also um, <clears throat> protecting our communities from toxic and reactive waste. And uh, as I said, things are kind of moving really quickly. Um, we are actually uh, looking really specifically right now at some requests for appropriations, which if you're not too familiar with that, we get a lot of talk about um, bills and resolutions that are being put forward, but we don't really talk much about the money side of things, um, where our legislators at the same time are working to figure out where our taxpayer dollars are going towards. And we're looking at two in specific right now, um, and just because they recently just finished making their priority list and they're presenting this saying, okay, this is what we want funding. And some of the things that we would like to see funded didn't make it on the list, but sadly, a few did not. All right. So, which bills, uh, either Senate or House bills, do does Heal like feel confident about passing? Yeah, definitely. Right now, we are seeing some really good uh, small steps for the Great Salt Lake. Um, you guys have probably seen or heard a little bit of talk about the Great Salt Lake up at the Utah Legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been quite a bit of talk, but in our view, it's been a little bit of action. So one bill that we are excited to see that would be a small step is Senate Bill 92. It's a bill that would create a special Great Salt Lake license plate, so maybe like a Pulo Brian shrimp on our license plate or something like that. And the funds created from that license plate purchase would go to a um, fund to increase education research around the Great Salt Lake. So that's one that we're seeing pass through pretty quickly. Uh, I think it's at its final step, which is at the House floor. Just needs that final vote from the House members, and it can be then voted and then signed on by the governor. How much uh, like revenue is something like that expected to generate? You know, it's really interesting. It ended up being something of awareness and seeing how many people actually purchase this license plate. Uh, I think the cost of the plate itself is $25. But what's really important about this is it goes into a fund called the State Sovereign Lands Fund, which this fund was created to basically get some money off of um, royalties of industry operating on our sovereign lands. And recently, the Great Salt Lake has been 
um, added onto as a sovereign land. So things like U.S. magnesium, um, other industry on the actual lake making money, put money into this fund. And then this Great Salt Lake license play would just add money on top of that. So it is probably going to be really small compared to what U.S. magnesium has to pay, but it's still a great way to get some bipartisan support towards uh, Great Salt Lake. Sure. What are some of the uh, the other bills that um, you're feeling optimistic about at this point? Yeah, definitely. We are looking really um, <clears throat> forward to a, a request for appropriations for increased dust monitoring around the Great Salt Lake. Mm. So we have a really a pretty good system here in throughout the valley that records PM two point five pollution, which is a type of pollution that we see during the winter time. It's that smoggy. Um, smaller particulate matter uh, and we've created a pretty good robust system with that but what we don't have is an understanding of how the dust or PM10 particulate matters are getting into the air so there is a request for funding that we feel really optimistic about that will help fund um, more monitors around Great Salt Lake communities so that one we're looking pretty uh, happy about and then we're also really excited for an air quality research um, expansion in the Uinta Basin. This mm. is House Bill 319. So in the Uinta Basin, there's been quite a bit of a issue with ozone um, pollution, which is a type of pollution that's like a mix of sunshine, heat, and then um, different NOx uh, in the that are released just throughout the uh, what's it called the the valley right and this pollution it's really interesting because i had asked like well it's snowing right now and why is there so much ozone in the uinta basin but it has to do with our inversion mixed into it as well how we have a hot layer of air trapped beneath cold that's happening in the basin so they're trying to understand all this stuff and we're learning a lot of this from a really great project from the utah state university and this bill house bill 319 would give more funding and expand this project so we can keep learning about the interfacing and keep up with some campaigns to make sure methane isn't leaking in that area and really optimistic with this we've seen it pass through the senate floor and it's on its final vote in the house okay so it seems like some of these bills that have a little bit of a focus on research or data collection um as it relates to you know um, substances that might impact human health it seems like that's where maybe some of these things are moving um ahead i'm also curious what are some of the um, bills that you guys are really working hard to get past that you think are really important um that that we're looking at this session yeah it's great. one that and that's a really interesting point that you kind of bring up. We're seeing a lot of research being done, mm. and we're now looking to push some of these bills that are a little bit harder or, or requests for appropriations that do more of the action part. So that's what we're kind of starting to focus a little bit more on. Uh, for example, we have done so many free fare or zero fare studies throughout the year. We had free fare February last year. We've had multiple uh, free public transportation pilot programs. And we've gotten a lot of research based off of those showing just positive um, aspects in almost every area from increased ridership to decrease in pollution. So wow. this year, Senator Weiler has put in a preparation to do a one-year uh, study for this, to so do a one-year full free fare, and then also to fund a study to understand what that means and what that could look for for maybe a free fare forever. 
Uh, currently, there has been quite a bit of opposition due to the price tag. It is $25 million. Um, but again, we've seen so much public support that we really feel like this is something that our uh, lawmakers should at least consider. So we're encouraging a lot of people to reach out to what is known as the Executive Appropriations Committee. They're the final bosses that get to decide where our taxpayer dollars go. And we're asking all of our supporters and individuals to ask to prioritize this funding, to, to see what public transportation's real power is with our air and also with mobility issues. It's it's interesting because twenty five million is certainly a ton of money, but when we compare it to some of the other um, numbers that the state is working with on some of these large projects, it it doesn't seem as big. And I don't know, I don't have those you know off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but I I'm I know that some of these had price tags of like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Yeah, I mean, some are even up in the billions. So what mm-hmm. we're kind of reminding them is there's a. Uh, right now proposes to expand a portion of I-15 and they're looking at funding I think it's like 1.6 billion dollars towards that so it just shows like that comparison of how much we're putting money into vehicle infrastructure versus public transportation and how we see that in our like the environmental lens is we're putting more money into vehicle emissions rather than reducing emissions right now. Great. That's a, that's a great comparison mm. to think about just right. the scale of difference there. I I got one here uh, that Heal opposes. It's Senate Bill 96. It's called the Fiduciary Duty Modifications. I'll read its brief description. <laughs> Compelling it, title. You ready for it? It would restrict government entities, basically counties, cities, from being able to consider social, environmental, or governance practices of investment funds when making decisions about where to invest public money. So, so a city couldn't consider uh, uh, investment funds, ESG um, processes. Environmental and social, social responsibility. Yeah, so, yeah, and governance practices when considering where to invest their money. That's, that's the bill. Obviously, he all opposes that. <laughs> yes, we absolutely oppose this one. And it's actually coming, it's like a two-part bill. So there's 96 and 97. Yeah. And they're both having a lot of this um, anti-ESG language, which again is that environmental, social, and government risk. Um, and we're mostly in, in, in con- <laughs> not wanting this bill to pass because it's just, it doesn't go with the market. We right. know where people are going towards, and a lot of financial institutions or just entities are looking towards uh, doing business with people who do have a, a better track record with environmental, um, the environmental footprint or how they're doing things with this socially. So it's very interesting that this is something that's been put forward. Uh, we were actually getting ready for this bill to be heard today, but there's been a lot of internal kind of fighting with this bill because we do have financial institutions coming forward like banks saying we don't support this like this is bad um, for our economy Mm -hmm. and there's been research showing that this is where this has been done in other places like Texas it has cost millions of dollars for taxpayers where we're seeing these big businesses just end up saying okay we're not going to do business in your state if that's what you want to do and we're losing all that money that's connected to taxpayer money and, and bonds. So it's really, it's a technical one, but it's, we have been seeing a lot of opposition. And last year there was something similar that was killed before it even made it into committee. So 
we're hoping that's what we can do. It's, it's looking a little bit more like that since it has been held. And it, I think this is the second time that this bill has been held up at the legislature because there's just so much pushback. And it's just really bad policy that they're putting forward. Yeah. It seems interesting to, to also, I guess, put that um, rule, that limitation on the way that cities and towns and municipalities yeah. can make their decisions. Right. And what if the yeah. city and and what if the city said, no, we're not going to follow this. We're, we'll do whatever we want. It's called home rule. Hey. <laughs> and and so what are the what are the consequences? What is the state legislature going to, you know, penalize Park City because they actually went ahead and used ESG processes or parameters? It's oh, it's it's so sorry. All right. Yeah, it's really interesting and it's really um like uh, unfortunate that they're they're going into such a, a scary area where now let's say we like a city does go forward with something and for some reason the other whatever it was that they didn't go forward says okay well i think they did it because of esg like yeah. it opens up another like kind of worms <laughs> that we're, we're really scared about because it can be lots of well they said this they said that they didn't choose us because we're environmentalists they, they did choose us because we weren't right it's really interesting and, and there's no way to really to, to fully be able to identify that from anything yeah so it, it, it's a very interesting one all right. It's, it's also a, a complete waste of time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, let's yeah. say um, But, yeah, that's, that's what legislatures do sometimes. I want to turn to another one. Uh, oh, where is it? Uh, that, that you do support. It's with HB 217, school energy and water reductions. And I say you do support. Heal supports. This bill would channel nearly $10 million to qualifying school districts to improve their conservation with a priority for rural schools and districts or charter schools within the Great Salt Lake Basin. Hey, that sounds like a, a, a great endeavor. Yes, and sadly, I'm really sad to like burst it, but this <laughs> bill has already been killed, sadly. Uh, um, why not? There has been a lot. And it's really interesting for this is where we're kind of starting to see a little bit of... Um, well, we're kind of trying to encourage our lawmakers to reconsider these things where they they didn't want to pass this because it was a grant. So the Utah legislature would just give this money. This money wouldn't have to be coming back to the legislature. Schools can do what they need to do to get this conservation and energy upgrades. But the House Rules Committee was, the House Education Committee said that we would like this money to be a loan. We want to give it to the schools, but then the school has to pay it back for us. And the sponsor of the bill refused to do that. They, they said, we, we spoke with schools. That is going to make another process, and that's going to make it difficult for schools to become self-sufficient with these energy efficiency savings. So we're trying to get more savings into the school, not funnel those savings back to the school. So that's sadly a bill that did get killed. We're hoping to maybe pull it back later, maybe meet halfway with legislators saying, okay, if you want some of this money back, maybe a percentage, and then the rest of it can still be grants for the schools. We have a couple more minutes left. Are there any bills in particular that you want to highlight um, for us today? Yeah, definitely. I think the one that's really, let's use like know where priority is with money, is another RFA that we're looking specifically into. And it's one that is a request to basically give $2 million to Rocky Mountain Power 
to a recent growing to include you does not you know what we're we're losing your signal a little bit can you repeat what you just said sorry about that can you hear me now yeah Yeah. awesome so the one our request for funding that we're specifically looking into and we're in opposition for is a funding request where our Utah legislature would give two million dollars to Rocky Mountain Power to basically have a a legal uh, challenge of the EPA's ruling to include us in the good neighbor rule so what that basically means is we're handing out $2 million for Rocky Mountain Power to fight reducing emissions. Um, back in 2016, the Environmental Protection Agency of the EPA issued a ruling saying, Rocky Mountain Power, you need to install pollution controls or shut down two of your most polluting uh, coal plants, which are in Emory County. Rocky Mountain Power failed to do this, so the EPA came out with a new ruling. And now in response, <laughs> Rocky Mountain Power has basically asked the Utah legislator to use taxpayer dollars to fight this legal uh, challenge. So this is one that we're in opposition for because we really do believe that this $2 million would just be wasted. This is going into legal challenges and that $2 million should go towards some of these other things that we feel like have way more uh, community impact, such as giving water conservation and energy upgrades to schools or maybe free fares or zero fares for a year. So that's one that we've been highlighting and now it's really high up on the property list for our legislators to fund. So we recommend you to reach out to the Executive Appropriations Committee and tell them you don't want your taxpayer money to go towards fighting emission reduction. Okay, great. I'm I'm glad that you highlighted that one. Um, it's always interesting to follow kind of where the money where the money goes, and it's hard to tease that out when you're looking at these bills on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we go gotta ahead. we gotta wrap up. Uh, where can people go to learn more about these bills? Obviously, the Heal Utah website. I bet. Yeah, definitely. So you can follow us on any social media platform, even TikTok. We're at Heal Utah. And then you can also uh, text our capital report number, which is 855-801-2906. And just type capital report, all one word. So it's C-A-P-I-T-O-L-R-E-P-O-R-T. And we will send you weekly updates with these kind of bill breakdowns. And you can always reach out to us for more questions. Wow, I I love that. That number one more time. Yes, it's 855-801-2906. Great. All right. Uh, Mese Gonzalez, and I hope I pronounced your first name correctly. Yeah, you got it. Mese. All right. Mese Gonzalez <laughs> with Heal Utah. Thank you so much for giving us that update, and we'll have you back uh, when the legislative yep. session ends uh, in the first week of March. Thanks again. Look, looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having us on. All right. Hey, we got about oh, six or seven minutes and we want to cover a couple uh, items in the news that are local related with this one with respect to what is it called? shed yeah hunting? like antler or shed hunting Shedding. shed so, hunting which is the what <laughs> so basically when the you know what? deer or elk or moose drop their antlers which they naturally which do they're doing each, now. each year in the spring late winter okay um People go and they like seek those out and they try to collect them and they try to sell them. And there are rules surrounding this. Like if you're going to do it, there's a training you take. You need a permit? Through the state online, yeah. You just can't wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm going to go out 
inc- you have to have right. You should get a permit. Yes, and you can do that through um, the state website okay. through DNR's website, I believe it is. Um, and it's I've gone through it a few times. It's um, really quick and easy and just very sure. informative. So it just right. shares with you the basics of what's happening and your potential impacts. And I think the most important part of that, that DWR is really wanting us to focus on this year is the impacts to those species that you're collecting sheds from, because sometimes people will sort of disturb animals trying to get too close. If they've dropped the shed and they're bedding down, people will try to get them to move. They'll they'll go in. And so anyway, DWR um, has implemented emergency statewide restrictions for shed antler hunting to help protect wintering big game. Hmm. Um, and so these antler gathering restrictions are effective February 7th. So it's already in effect through April 30th wow. across the entire state Ooh. on both public and on private land. Wow. So if I was right, I can't even go out on my own land right. my own and, and collect right. antlers. So I'll use the Swanner Preserve as yeah. an example. Um, we generally have herds of elk out there. Sometimes they drop their sheds. We can't go get those until April 30th, and nobody can do this anywhere. So if you see somebody collecting sheds, even if they have a permit, um, it's it's not allowed. It, it's um, against the state. law in a sense right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and the reason for this is that the biologists at the division have been monitoring the condition of the deer um, and the ungulates since early December because of these really deep snow depths. And they look at their body condition mm. and they look at their energy stores, body fat levels, fawn weights, and they also GPS track some of these and they have found that because of the extreme cold and the snowpack these survival rates are being impacted and um and the animals are not in great shape so they're really vulnerable right now so anytime that you force them you startle them maybe or you disturb them and they they jump up and they walk away or they run away that uses up some of their really valuable energy stores and so that's where this um Mm. this regulation is coming from Mm -hmm. and they followed right on the heels of that several days later by implementing emergence or by implementing um sort of a reminder and education about dogs and dogs disturbing deer and elk as well right. they're struggling and if a deer you know gets disturbed gets up has to run or walk away that's also illegal and that's always illegal your yeah. dog can never disturb wildlife um and so this is just especially important right now okay. um, so they're really hammering home this message based on the data that they're collecting and are asking for help kind of distributing that that information so again it's effective now Started February 7th, continues mm-hmm. through the end. A- April 30th. The end of yeah. April. Yeah. And even again, if you're out walking in the woods right. and you come upon, you stumble upon. Yeah, yeah. A, uh, an, a, a pair, I don't know what's the proper terminology. It's half, a, it's not a pair of antlers. It's half an antler. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> and antler. A- and antler. Antler, and yeah, antler. right. Uh, whether it's deer or moose or elk, because they're all shedding. Right. You, you're not allowed to collect it. Right. Oh, wow. Right. So it's it's you have to leave wild. it alone. You have to leave it alone. You can't pick it up and, and take it put it in the trunk of your car and, and then, you know, take it back to Boca. 
with right. you. Uh, okay. <laughs> so you have to leave it alone, whether whether it was there before you got there or whether you're, like, going to run after it and, like you say, now stress it and make it. So right. th- 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 leave it alone. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I just encourage people, um, you know, right now these animals are, there's such deep snow in the mountains. They're coming down to the roads and yeah. the neighborhoods and the parks and these lower elevations. And so we're running into them a little bit more. And I know it's happened to me out with my dog and I'm sure it's happened to everyone else. You're running into these animals on or next to the trail. And if you can, like if you can turn around and take a different route and give them a break for the afternoon, um, I, I would just encourage people to do that because they're maybe having more of an impact right. than and we realize. Speaking of giving them a break, real quick, our, our producer, Claire Wild, had an experience where yesterday there were elk out on the uh, Park Meadows golf course and these three knuckleheads went out after them and it, to take photos and videos of them. So literally went out to them and chased them, just not, Claire's not, chased them, otherwise stressed them out, right? Oh, my God. Leave them alone, all right? It's, it's poor behavior by one set of wildlife, us, towards, the, you know, the original wildlife, them. All right. Enough said. We'll get off our soapbox. Go to DWR to learn more about that. Yeah, they have information. They have press releases out. You can learn more about about why it's important. You can email your thoughts, comments, and ideas for future shows to thisgreenearth at kpcw.org.